praise belongs to Allah. We praise Him, seek His assistance and forgiveness, and we seek refuge in Allah from the evil of ourselves and the evil consequences of our deeds. Whomever Allah guides, there is no one that can lead him astray, and whomever Allah leads astray, there is no one that can guide him. I bear witness that nothing deserves to be worshipped except Allah alone, and that he has no partners. And I bear witness that Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wasallam is his slave servant and his messenger. We thank Allah for this opportunity this evening to gather for the first in a series of lectures, insha'Allah, dealing with an explanation, a brief explanation of the Risala or treatise or essay of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal rahimahullah entitled Usul al-Sunnah. We expect insha'Allah that these lectures should last for approximately 10 weeks and we hope that Allah will give us the tawfiq or the success and the ability to complete these lectures and to benefit from them insha'Allah. There are just a few points that I would like to begin with before actually beginning with the text of the book uh, as points of introduction. And then, insha'Allah, we hope to read a few, points, a few points from the text of the book with some brief explanation of the important uh, principles or the important items that need explanation or definition. The first thing we should be reminded of the hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in which it is reported by al-Bukhari and Muslim on the authority of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiallahu anhu he said that the messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said إِنَّمَا الْأَعْمَالُ بِالنِّيَّاتِ وَإِنَّمَا لِكُلِّ مْرِئٍ مَا نَوَاهِ In this hadith we are reminded of the importance of sincerity and purity of intentions that verily all actions are judged according to intentions and that a person shall earn that which he has intended. So let us ask Allah to make our intentions, our intentions purely for Him that we are seeking to study together and to learn together in order to worship Allah better and to please Him in this life with the hope of His reward in the next. Al-ikhlas or sincerity of intention is of the utmost importance. The second thing that I want to mention is we should be prepared for new knowledge. We should be open, open our hearts to learn, to increase our knowledge and to improve our worship and our practice of this deen while we have a chance in this life because once we pass through this world there will be no chance to increase in our good deeds or to make any further effort. So let us benefit from the knowledge, search, research, question, and discuss so that we can learn and improve. Of course, new knowledge, it should be based on evidence. And we hope, inshallah, during the course of these lectures, that whatever principles or points of information are presented, that we will be able to verify and authenticate the evidences for whatever points or principles we may present from within the text of the book of Al-Imam Ahmed or from the commentary or explanations. Allah says in the Qur'an, أَعُوذُ بِاللَّهِ مِنَ الشَّيْطَانِ الرَّجِيمِ بِسْمِ اللَّهِ الرَّحْمَنِ الرَّحِيمِ وَقَالُوا لَنْ يَدْخُلَ الْجَنَّةِ إِلَّا مَنْ كَانَ هُودًا أَوْ نَصَارًا تِلْكَ أَمَانِيَهُمْ قُلْ هَاتُوا بُرْحَانَكُمْ إِنْ كُنْتُمْ صَادِقِينَ they said, that is the previous nations, the Christians and Jews, they said that no one will enter paradise except he is a Jew or a Christian. And Allah says, that is their own wishes, mere wishes. He said, قُلْ 
say to them, Hatu burhanakum in kuntum sadiqeen. Bring your proof, proof, your evidence, if you are truthful. And we hope to use this as a principle that whatever we say or whatever we claim, that we will bring our proof for what we say, insha'Allah. Also, another point of importance in this introduction, we want to mention the importance of the study of Al-Aqidah, the importance of the study of the Islamic creed or Islamic beliefs. And one of the things that we might mention which show the great importance of Al-Aqidah is that the Prophet ﷺ spent most of the 13 years of his prophethood in Mecca before the Hijrah to Medina teaching the people Al-Aqidah and specifically, primarily, that aspect of the Islamic creed which is called Al-Tawheed. For 13 years, almost totally, he concentrated on explaining to the people the Islamic Aqidah, the belief system, and particularly Al-Tawheed. Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, the first of the four Imams who, whose madhab has spread throughout the Muslim world, he was known to be a great scholar of fiqh, of Islamic jurisprudence. And in the Islamic sciences, fiqh is called the secondary branches of the Islamic sciences, al-furur. But the primary or fundamental branch of the Islamic sciences, the usul, is al-aqidah. Yani, there's al-usul, the fundamentals, and there's al-furur, the branches or secondary matters. Fiqh or Islamic jurisprudence is considered to be of the secondary matters. But the primary and most important of all Islamic sciences, al-usul, it is al-aqidah. And for that reason, al-imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah, may Allah have mercy upon him, even though he was well known and is well known today as a great scholar of fiqh, he wrote a very small book similar to the book of al-imam Ahmed, this usul sunnah He also wrote a book similar to this, and he, split, he called it or he entitled it al-fiqh al-akbar, al-fiqh al-akbar the greatest fiqh. And in that book, he didn't talk about some great Islamic jurisprudence, but he talked about Al-Aqidah al Islamia, the Islamic creed. He called that book about the Islamic creed the greatest fiqh, greater than the Islamic jurisprudence that he is well known today as, before. So this Aqidah is of the primary importance, it is the basis and the foundation of Islam, inshallah, as we will discuss later during the reading of this book. Also, there is a need for us to know our scholars, the Islamic scholars. There is a great need to know them, because how can we trust the people that we are taking knowledge from unless we know something about them? We must have some idea who were the scholars from amongst the Sahaba, the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, and from amongst the Tabi'un, those who learned from the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, the second generation. And the Atba'a Tabi'een, the third generation, who learned from the students of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. We should know who they are, and those who came after them, like the four Imams, Al-Imam Abu Hanifa, Al-Imam Malik ibn Anas, Al-Imam Muhammad ibn Idris, Al-Shafi'i, and Imam Ahmed, Rahimahumullah, may Allah have mercy on all of them. So on this point, I would like to just quickly discuss some points from the life of Imam Ahmed to know who is this man. But before discussing the life of Imam Ahmed, I would also just point to or mention in brief something about the uh, other Imams. The first of them in chronological order is... Al-Imam Al-Nu'man Ibn Thabit, Rahimahullah, who is well known as Abu Hanifa. He was born in the year 80 AH, after the Hijrah, and he died in the year 150 after the Hijrah, in the middle of the second century of the Muslim calendar. He grew up in Al-Kufa and became famous in fiqh and opinion. He earned his living as a cloth merchant, and spent his life teaching in Al-Kufa and Baghdad 
Allah blessed him with a group of devoted students who learned from him and put down or wrote down what he said, his opinions of fiqh. And those uh, writings became the madhab of Abu Hanifa or the Hanafi madhab. Among his students were Abu Yusuf, Muhammad ibn al-Hassan, al-Shaybani, and Zu'afar ibn al-Hudayn. Imam Abu Hanifa achieved such great fame in his use of analogy, al-Qiyas, and al-Ra'i, opinion, and in the establishment of the proof of his opinion to the extent that Imam Malik, rahimahullah, said of Imam Abu Hanifa, I saw a man, and if I asked of him to prove that this stone pillar that's holding up a building, if I asked him to prove that this stone pillar was gold, he will be able to prove it. This shows the power of the intellect of Imam Abu Hanifa and his ability to reason and to make analogy and express his opinion. The second of the four Imams is Imam Malik ibn Anas, rahimahullah. He was born in the year 93 of the Hijrah in the end of the first century of the Hijrah of the Prophet wasallam, his migration from Mecca to Medina. And he died, Imam Malik died in the year 179 of the Hijrah near the end of the second century, 29 years after the death of Imam Abu Hanifa. Imam Malik grew up in Al-Madina in the city of the Prophet wasallam. He loved knowledge and respected and glorified the Sunnah of the Prophet wasallam. He was only 20 years old when the scholars bore witness to his knowledge and proclaimed him capable of ijtihad, of making independent judgment based on Qur'an and Sunnah and giving fatwa, legal rulings. Of the greatest legacies, of the greatest legacies that Imam Malik left was his student, Al-Shafi'i. Al-Shafi'i was born in the year 150 in the middle of the second century of the Muslim calendar and died in the beginning of the third century in the year 204 AH. He was a diligent student who memorized Al-Muwatta and read it to Imam Malik. He memorized it from him only by listening to Imam Malik as he was reading the hadith from his book Al-Muwatta to his students in the masjid. Imam Shafi, a young boy at that time, who left his home to go and study in Medina, listened to the readings of Imam Malik from his book Al-Muwatta and memorized those hadiths only by listening to them when he was 15 years old. Al-Shafi'i, rahimahullah, went between Mecca and Medina and surprised people with his knowledge of Al-Quran, his outstanding fiqh, Islamic jurisprudence, his expert, his expertise in As-Sunnah, and his sweet, perfect language, Arabic language. A mistake was never found in his language. The likes of Al-Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal sat in the lessons of Imam Al-Shafi'i. And when one of the learned people of that time, Mahfouz ibn Abu Tawbah al-Baghdadi, asked Imam Ahmed, he said to him, Oh Abu Abdullah, meaning Imam Ahmed, his kunya was Abu Abdullah. He said, Oh Abu Abdullah, there's Sufyan ibn Uyayna lecturing in the corner of the masjid, the masjid al-Makta, masjid al-Haram. And Sufyan ibn Uyayna was one of, also one of the greatest scholars of that time. Uh, so when he was told, when Imam Ahmed was told, Sufyan was teaching over there in the corner, it was suggested to him to go and sit with him. But Imam Ahmed replied, that I can miss. Yani the lecture of Sufyan ibn Uyayna I can miss, but not this one, the lecture of Imam al-Shafi'i. Later, Imam Shafi'i left from Mecca and traveled to Egypt, and he remained there for some time. He died in the year 204 AH. When the news of his death reached Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he was deeply grieved and he cried incessantly until his son, Abdullah, seeing his state of grief, asked him, O oh father, who was this man, al-Shafi'i? Imam Ahmed said, O oh my son, al-Shafi'i was as the sun is to this world and as health is to the body. Can you find a replacement for these two things? Imam Ahmed also said about his friend, brother and teacher, al-Shafi'i, I did not know the nasikh and mansukh in hadith, that is those which are abrogated 
or which no longer have legal ruling and those which abrogated them. He said, I didn't know about these things until I sat with a Shafi. He said, that is, Imam Ahmed said, for 30 years, I would not sleep until after I had prayed for a Shafi and asked for forgiveness for him from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. This is Imam Ahmed's witness for a Shafi'i and it is sufficient. Finally, we turn to some discussion of Imam Ahmed himself because it is important when we study this book it is our religion that we are learning and it is more importantly the basics of Islam the Islamic Aqeedah, our faith and our way of practicing Islam our methodology when we study this book of such importance we should know something about the man who we are learning from he is the fourth Imam in chronological order he was born in the year 164 AH and died in Baghdad on a Friday in the year 241 after the Hijrah. He is Abu Abdullah, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, or Ahmed ibn Muhammad ibn Hanbal al-Shaybani, the Imam of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah in his time. He was born in Baghdad in Rabi al-Awwal in the year 164 and he attended the circles of Qadi Abu Yusuf the student of Abu Hanifa, Rahimahullah, where he studied fiqh. He left this in favor of hadith, which he began to study at the age of 13. After already, after having already memorized the Qur'an at a young age, he later traveled extensively acquiring and learning hadith from over 280 teachers. From them, Awaqi' ibn al-Jarrah, Yahya ibn Sa'id al-Qattan, Abdurrahman ibn Mahdi, Sufyan ibn Ayyina, al-Shafi'i, and so many others, rahimahumullah, may Allah have mercy on all of them. He underwent severe torture and trial due to his defending the correct aqidah, the aqidah of the Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, that is the aqidah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, his companions, radiallahu anhum, may Allah be pleased with them all, and those who followed them in their belief and in their methodology or way of practicing Islam. After defending this aqidah, he was persecuted and tortured as a result of that. And he was the foremost of those in his time of clinging or sticking to this way and avoiding innovations. Imam Ahmed started learning uh, the knowledge of hadith as we mentioned at an early age. And he listened to his teachers in al-Baghdad, traveled to al-Hijaz, that is Mecca and Medina, to al-Yemen in the south of the Arabian Peninsula to acquire hadith and to many other places. He performed Hajj on foot, not on camel, not on horse, plane, boat, or train. He performed Hajj on foot several times. He started compiling what he heard until he collected a great number of the hadith. And his book, The Musnad of Imam Ahmed, it is said that it contains over 30,000, and some said 40,000 narrations of hadith from the Prophet Muhammad sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. If you compare this, to the book of Imam Muslim, in which he collected, counting all repetitions, repetitions of hadith, he collected approximately 12,000 hadith. And the book of Al-Imam Al-Bukhari, in which he collected, counting the hadith which are repeated more than once, a little over 7,000 hadith. Then you will see the massiveness of the collection of Imam Ahmed, which contained over 30,000, and according to some, 40,000 hadith of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. He became famous among people by his piety and goodness, his lack of concern for worldly things, and his personal cleanliness to the extent that he became the example for these characteristics. He used to base his fatwa on hadith, and he really gave a mere opinion from himself. His vast study of hadith not only enabled Imam Ahmed to become knowledgeable about the laws of Islam, the ahkam, the legal rulings, but also it enabled him to surpass, to surpass others in his understanding of the creeds of Islam, the Islamic aqidah, and the issues related to al-Iman, faith. 
he successfully challenged all deviation in belief or action. And not only in beliefs, but also the practices that the people began to practice, which were a deviation from the sunnah of the Prophet ﷺ that he found in his time. He, he, he challenged them. He criticized the Sufi pioneers of his time for initiating discussions about matters of the devil's whispering and reflections. He refuted the atheists who didn't believe in any god. He fought against the groups that didn't believe in the attributes or the names of Allah and stood firm and strong against these groups such as Al-Jahmiyyah and Al-Mu'tazila who said that the Qur'an was created. Uh, and these struggles that he made, they are recorded in the books that are written or that were collected by his students and the proofs of those things that are passed down to today so that when these ideas creep up amongst the Muslims, they can be refuted and pushed away. Imam Ahmed debated with Ibn Abi Dawood, the leader of the Mu'tazila, in front of the leader of the Muslims, Al-Wasiq Billah, and Allah made clear the truth through Imam Ahmed as he defeated the leader of the Mu'tazila and the evil of Al-Mu'tazila, which was a group, inshallah, that we will mention maybe during the course of the book, we will give some definitions of these various groups just to have an idea who they were and what they believed in, in case some of those ideas may still be present in the Muslim world today. But that evil, inshallah, was defeated forever, never to return again, inshallah. In short, Imam Ahmed became the leader without rival of the Ahl Sunnah in his time, and he was the teacher of those who came after him, and a pillar of the knowledge of Hadith. Al-Bukhari, Muslim, and Abu Dawood were the students of Imam Ahmed. Thus, Imam Ahmed was by himself a whole ummah, a nation, a master for the Ahl Hadith, the people of Hadith, and a teacher for the Ahl Sunnah, the people who practice the way or the Sunnah of Muhammad Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. There are many sayings of the scholars about Imam Ahmed, but time will not allow us to mention them all at this time. Let me just mention the statement of Imam al-Shafi'i. He said, I left Baghdad and I did not leave behind me a man better having more knowledge or greater understanding, nor having more taqwa, piety, than Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Ishaq ibn Rahaway, the teacher of al-Bukhari, said, I used to sit with Ahmed and Ibn Ma'in, that is Yahya ibn Ma'in, another of the teachers of Bukhari, revising or reviewing a hadith. And I used to say, that is Ishaq used to say, what is the fiqh or the understanding of this hadith, of such and such hadith? What is its explanation? So they would all remain silent except for Ahmed. The day he died was a remarkable day. All of Baghdad, men and women, came out to pray the janazah, the funeral prayer, in respect of him, and to pray for his forgiveness from Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala. And not only the Muslims, but also the Jews and Christians came out on that day. It is said that more than 20,000 of these, of the non-believers, Christians and Jews, embraced Islam on the day that Imam Ahmed died, and no one was left but that they cried for him. This is in brief, but the life of Imam Ahmed is much more detailed, time will not permit, perhaps inshallah we will find a chance maybe to distribute something in more detail about the life of Imam Ahmed, so that we can know more about this man who was one of the great scholars of Islam, and those scholars are many. Before beginning the book, I'd just like to briefly or quickly mention some of the topics that we will discuss during the course of these lectures for the next 10 weeks, inshallah. Some of the important topics that we will cover in this book. In brief, inshallah, although many of them need whole lectures, is the importance of the example of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ and those who followed them in their way of the later generations. The importance of taking as a model or an example the companions of the Prophet ﷺ. Avoiding or abandoning all innovations and warning against them. Avoiding sitting with 
or listening to or learning from the people who deviated from the Quran and Sunnah. Avoiding argumentation, quarreling and disputing about the matters of deen which are very clear. The meaning of Sunnah and its status or position or superiority and its relation to the Quran. Belief in Al-Qadr, that is divine decree, it's good and it's evil. The prohibition about philosophy or rhetorical discussions about Al-Qadr, divine decree. The fact that the Quran is the speech of Allah and it is not created. Believing that the believers, the mu'minun, that they will see Allah on the day of resurrection. The question of whether or not the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam saw Allah in the day of the Isra and Mi'raj, the night journey and the ascension to the seven heavens. The belief in the Mizan or the scales that would weigh the deeds of people on the day of resurrection. The belief that Allah will speak to His servants, all human beings, on the day of resurrection. Belief in the Hawd the pond or the fountain that would be given to the Prophet ﷺ for his followers to drink from on the day of resurrection. Belief in the punishment of the grave and the trials of the punishment of the grave. Belief in intercession by the Prophet Muhammad ﷺ and others on the day of resurrection that some would intercede by permission from Allah on the day of resurrection. Belief in Al-Masih al-Dajjal, the Antichrist and some things related to his coming. Belief in the return of Isa ibn Maryam, Jesus, the son of Mary, السلام, and that he would kill Ad-Dajjal, the Antichrist. Belief that Iman or faith is speech and actions. It's not just something in the heart, but it is also speech and actions, and that it increase and decrease. Belief that abandonment of Salat without any excuse is an act of disbelief the superiority and virtues of the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, hearing and obeying those in authority, patience with the oppression of the evil rulers, jihad with the rulers, up until Yawm Qiyamah, whether they are good or evil. Speaking the truth and not fearing anyone except Allah, acknowledging the rights of our scholars and their position that Allah has given to them as the inheritance of the Prophets. Praying behind the leader of the Muslims, whether he is righteous or unrighteous. Rebellion against the authorities in the Islamic State. That we do not bear witness for any one of the Muslims with certainty that he would be in paradise or in the hellfire, except those whom have been identified by the Qur'an itself or the witness of the Prophet ﷺ. Believing that whoever meets Allah with any sin which he has repented from, that his repentance would be accepted and he would not be punished for it in the hereafter. Believing that whoever meets Allah on the day of resurrection with any sin which they have not repented for, and they have not been punished for, then they would be subject to the will of Allah. He may punish them if He wills, or He may forgive them if He wills. The belief that Allah doesn't forgive shirk if anyone dies worshipping something other than Allah, knowingly. The fact that the punishment for one who commits adultery after having been married, that their punishment is stoning. The fact that those who criticize or ridicule or despise the companions of the Prophet ﷺ, they are innovators. Clarification of the deviation of the Rafidah or those people who are known today as Shia. The fact that trying to make reconciliation between the Sunnah and the Shia is only a deception, a trick. The difference between hypocrisy in deeds and hypocrisy in beliefs. The fact that whoever commits a major sin, we cannot declare that person as a kafir 
and that he has been removed from the Ummah of Islam. And also that it is not permissible to declare a person to be a kafir, any particular person to identify this Muslim and say he is a kafir because of some deed that he has done or statement that he has made. Except with the conditions that we will discuss insha'Allah. The fact that Al-Jannah, the paradise, and Al-Nar, the hellfire, are both created things and they have already been created, they exist now. And also the fact that the praying upon those who have died from amongst the Muslims, even if they were sinners, that we should pray upon them, we should make janazah prayer for them. These are the main topics, inshallah, that we will pass through in these 10 weeks. And I think probably you will agree that it's not going to be easy to cover them all. But bi'ithnillah, inshallah, we will discuss at least in brief all of them and perhaps some of them in a little more detail. This book, Usul al-Sunnah, why did I choose this book? First, because it was requested that we should study together some of the sisters' acts, that we study together a book of Islamic Aqeedah. And I thought about the small books of Aqeedah, like Al-Aqeedah Al-Wasitiyah by Shaykh Islam Ibn Taymiyyah, and Al-Aqeedah Al-Tahawiyyah by Al-Imam Abu Ja'far Al-Tahawi, which are two of the most famous of the books of Aqeedah. One of them being by a Hanbali scholar and one of them by a Hanafi scholar. And there are so many other books of Aqeedah. But when I looked around for those books which were available in translation in English so that we could rely on something as notes and that there is some explanation for, I found that the best of what was available that has been translated of the books of Aqeedah was Usul Sunnah by Imam Ahmed and inshallah. Uh, we will at least have with us a translation of the text of the book with some commentary and some explanations of the important points in English so that it will be easier for us to follow. Although, inshallah, we will also rely on some Arabic books for further explanation and more details. The importance of this book is based on the fact that it was written by an honorable and noble imam of the imams of the Muslims, a respected imam, the scholar and the teacher the reviver of the Sunnah, the subduer of innovation, Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahimahullah. And this book is a summary of his belief drawn from the Quran and Sunnah. And that which the scholars of the early predecessors, the early generations of the Muslims, Sahaba, the Tabi'un, and the Atba'a Tabi'un, the first three generations of the Muslims, and the scholars of Hadith, that which they stood upon and that which they believed in, that which they adopted, and divulged and made the people to hold as their belief. This is only a summary of that belief. It doesn't include everything of the Aqeedah Islamiyah, but at least it gives us the fundamental principles of the Islamic belief and those fundamentals that the Islamic Aqeedah is derived from. So we hope, inshallah, that these fundamental principles will be understood and grasped thoroughly and based on these principles, inshallah, we will be able to derive the whole of the Islamic Aqeedah in all of the details of the points of Islamic creed or belief. The book begins with the Isnad or the chain of narrators who transmitted this book in its entirety from Imam Ahmed. And that Isnad ends with one of the close companions, one of the close students of Imam Ahmed, Abdus ibn Malik al-Attah rahimahullah who said I heard Abu Abdullah Ahmed ibn Hanbal may Allah be pleased with him saying Usul al-Sunnati indana at-tamassuku bima kana alayhi ashabu rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wa sallama wal-iqtida'u bihim Usul al-Sunnah indana the fundamental principles of the Sunnah with us are at-tamassuku, or holding fast, adhering to that which the companions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam were upon. This is the first principle, and it is a principle of extreme importance, adhering to that which the companions of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam were upon. وَالْإِقْتِدَاءُ بِهِمْ And taking them, 
and their way as a model to be followed, emulating them and following their example. This is also a basic principle of the principles of the Sunnah. وَالتَّرْقُ الْبِدْعِ وَكُلُّ بِدْعَةٍ فَهِيَ ضَلَالَةٌ The abandonment of innovations and every innovation is misguidance or astray. This is also a very important principle of the principles of Sunnah. وَتَرْقُ الْخُصُومَاتِ The abandonment of controversies. وَتَرْقُ الْجُلُوسِ مَا أَصْحَابِ الْأَهْوَاءِ the abandonment of sitting with the people of Ahwa, the people of desires, the people who make their opinions and their practices and their religion based on their own desires, not based on the Quran and Sunnah. وَتَرْقُ الْمِرَاءِ وَالْجِدَالِ وَالْخُصُومَاتِ فِي الدِّينِ And abandoning or the abandonment of quarreling, argumentation and controversy in the religion. He goes on to say, وَالسُنَّةُ عِنْدَنَا آثَارُ رَسُولِ اللَّهِ صَلَّى اللَّهُ عَلَيْهِ وَسَلَّمُ And the sunnah with us are the athar or the narrations, the reports of hadith, the sayings and practices and approvals of the Messenger of Allah Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam. He mentioned to us what is the usul, following the way of the companions, sticking to what they were upon, avoiding innovation, avoiding controversy and debating and argumentation in the religion, and now he explains to us what is the sunnah itself. Those are, those are the fundamentals, fundamental principles. But what is the sunnah? The sunnah with us are the athar, the narrations of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَالسُنَّةُ تُفَسِّرُ الْقُرْآنِ وَهِيَ دَلَائِلُ الْقُرْآنِ وَلَيْسَ فِي السُنَّةِ قِيَاسِ وَلَا تُضْرَبُ لَهَا الْأَمْثَالِ وَلَا تُدْرَكُوا بِالْعُقُولِ وَلَا الْأَحْوَاءِ إِنَّمَا هُوَ الْإِتِّبَاعُ وَتَرْكَ الْحَوَاءِ أو ترك الحواء. He said here, وَالسُنَّةُ تُفَسِّرُ الْقُرْآنِ This makes us to know the station or the status of the sunnah in reference to the Qur'an. The sunnah explains and clarifies the Qur'an. That which is not given in detail in the Qur'an, the sunnah explains it. That which the people didn't understand from the Qur'an, the Sunnah explains it and makes it clear. وَهِيَ دَلَائِلُ Quran, And this Sunnah is also a guide to the Qur'an, containing evidences and indications as to its meanings and correct interpretations. Not the interpretations of the individual as one may feel or think or desire, but the interpretations of the Messenger of Allah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. وَلَيْسَ فِي السُنَّةِ قِيَاسِ وَلَا تُدْرَبْ لَهَا الْأَمْثَالِ الْأَمْثَالِ There is no analogical reasoning in the sunnah and examples or parables or likenesses are not to be made for the sunnah. The analogical reasoning, inshallah, we should discuss later. But there is difference of opinion as to what Imam Ahmed means here by qiyas. Inshallah, we will discuss it uh, as we go along. Then he says, nor is it grasp. That is, nor is the sunnah grasp understood or comprehended by the intellect, by the uqool, or by the ahwa, desires. Yani, it is not for us to use our intellect to explain the sunnah, but it is for us, as Imam Ahmed says here, إِنَّمَا هُوَ الْإِتِّبَاعُ وَتَرْكُ الْحَوَىٰ Rather, it consists of following and depending upon it and abandoning the hawa or the desire. Yani, it is not for us to explain the sunnah as we like, but it is for us to follow the sunnah as it was given to us without trying to deviate from it or to change its meanings to fit our own desires or likes or our own interpretations or feelings. This is uh, the first part of what we wanted to discuss. Perhaps we will now give some explanation for these few lines that we have read. Beginning first with the first line of the book, Usulu Sunnah Indana, that is the fundamentals of the Sunnah or the foundations foundation principles of the sunnah, we should know first what is sunnah. First, one of the scholars who did an explanation of this essay of Imam Ahmed, uh, the Shaykh Abdullah ibn Abdurrahman al-Jibreen, he said that this essay or this treatise 
of for Imam Ahmed in the fundamentals of the Sunnah is in the fundamentals or the foundations of the Sunnah. And it is well known that the Asl, that is the name of this book, Usul Sunnah. Usul is the plural of Al Asl. And Al Asl, it means that which other things are built upon. Yani it is the foundation that you build upon. Or that which other things branch out from. That is, it is a fundamental thing or root or source and other things branch from it. This is the meaning of Asl. And here this is the meaning of Al-Usul. It means just as the foundation of a wall is that which you lay first and then build the wall upon it. And just as a tree has roots and the tree uh, grows up from it and its branches branch out from it. So also here Al-Usul, it means that which other things are built upon and that which other things branch out from or are derived from. So here he says, the meaning here is that the sunnah has usul, it has fundamentals or foundations that it, the sunnah, is derived from or it is built upon these foundations. That's what we want to study, the foundations that the sunnah is built upon or derived from and also the sunnah itself that is derived from those fundamentals. The asl, or aslu al-usul, the most fundamental of these fundamentals, it is the book of Allah and the sunnah of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa the Qur'an and the sunnah and that which has been transmitted from the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa the sahaba radiallahu anhum ajma'in. So based on this explanation, if the people are able, are able to materialize or to realize these fundamentals, that is, holding fast to the Qur'an and the Sunnah, and that which the companions of the Prophet ﷺ practiced, then in turn, they would be able to complete that which came from these fundamentals, that is, the details of the Sunnah. What is the Sunnah? As mentioned here in one of the footnotes, the first footnote, the term Sunnah here refers to the principles and foundations of the correct Islamic aqidah, belief, and the minhaj, methodology. Since the Salaf, or the, the early generation of the Muslims, would apply this term to matters of belief, aqidah, and minhaj, methodology, as can be seen from many of their books and writings. For example, Kitabu Sunnah, the Book of Sunnah of Imam Ahmed. Another book called Kitabu Sunnah of Imam Ahmed, and it deals with aqidah. As Sunnah, of Al-Asram, who was also a student of Imam Ahmed. He named his book as Sunnah, and it also was dealing with Islamic creed. Kitab al-Sunnah of Imam Abu Dawood, who has the famous book, The Sunan of Abu Dawood. In that Sunan, he has a chapter called Kitab al-Sunnah, and that chapter deals with Islamic aqidah, as well as Kitab al-Sunnah of Ibn Abi Asim, Kitab al-Sunnah of Abdullah, the son of Imam Ahmed, and so on and so on. There are so many of these books in which the early scholars used to call their books by the name as Sunnah, but they meant by Sunnah here the Islamic beliefs and the Islamic methodology of the Prophet ﷺ and his companions. Let me just mention here also, it is important, after this, uh, as we try to uh, remind ourselves and to focus on this point, that uh, they said here in the footnote, the uh, translator he put here, or the uh, uh, explainer of this book, he said the term sunnah was employed in this context that is being used here to explain the Islamic aqidah to differentiate between those matters of, of aqidah or creed and menhaj or methodology that the salaf or the early generations of the Muslims were upon to distinguish their belief and their menhaj from those matters which were innovated or newly invented by those who deviated and those who were from the misguided groups or sects. Yani here the term sunnah was used to mean that those Islamic beliefs and those practices or methodology that we are upon, they are different than what the people later innovated and made new that had no basis in the Qur'an and sunnah. So here, the meaning of this title, Usul al-Sunnah, it is referring to the Islamic beliefs and the Islamic uh, principles. But let me say, so that there is no confusion, that the word sunnah has many meanings. One of the common meanings of a sunnah, it is, as the people are using today, 
the definition of the scholars of Islamic jurisprudence, uh, the fuqaha, they said that sunnah means the opposite of wajib or fard. Sunnah means that which is not obligatory. We don't mean that meaning here. Another common meaning of a sunnah is sunnah meaning the opposite of bid'ah. Yani the sunnah means that which came from the Qur'an and the Prophet ﷺ, as opposed to bid'ah which was innovative, which had no basis in the Qur'an and sunnah. So we say this is sunnah meaning it's not from the bid'ah. That's another meaning. A third meaning as some of the scholars referred to in some of the books of the early scholars, they said that sunnah also can refer to that which is not mentioned in detail in the Qur'an. That is, we say this is from the sunnah, meaning we didn't find it in the Qur'an, but we found it in the words or in the practices or the approvals of the Prophet The last definition of sunnah is the definition of the scholars of hadith, the muhaddithun, and that definition is the most comprehensive of the definitions of a sunnah, and it is the sayings, the practices, and the tacit approvals of the Prophet ﷺ. That is, when he saw someone doing something, if he didn't speak against it, that means he approved of it, and that means it is from his sunnah. As well, they added to their definition of sunnah the sifat, khalqiyya wa khuluqiyya, that is, the uh, characteristics of the Prophet ﷺ, his physical characteristics, as well as his moral character, that this is also from the sunnah, and they said finally, that also included in the sunnah is the life of the Prophet ﷺ before and after his being missioned with prophethood. So these are some of the definitions of sunnah, inshallah, each one of them has its place and should be understood accordingly. Imam Ahmed said in this book, Usulu Sunnah Indana, Yani the fundamentals of the sunnah with us is holding fast to that which the companions of the Prophet ﷺ was upon. What do we mean by us? In the footnotes of this book it is mentioned that here he means the fundamentals of the sunnah with us. He means the scholars of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. He doesn't mean with all people that these are the fundamentals of sunnah, but these are the fundamentals of sunnah according to Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah. That is the people who stick to the sunnah and who keep themselves in one group, not separating and deviating into sects and parties fighting with one another and opposing one another. The Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah are the people who stick to the sunnah, who base their life and their belief on the sunnah, and who stick together in the Jama'ah and don't separate from the Jama'ah, or those who follow the first Jama'ah, that is the Sahaba, radiallahu anhum ajma'in. And at the head of the scholars of Ahl Sunnah wal Jama'ah, in his time was Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And in this regard, the way of the Salaf al-Salih, that is the pious predecessors, it was their practice to point out to the people who were the true followers and the true adherents of the Sunnah, adherents of the Sunnah. To point those people out, to say who are those people who are really following the Sunnah, so that the Aqidah and the Minhaj, the beliefs, and the practice or methodology of those people who are truly following the sunnah could be learned and stuck to. As the Imam Ayyub al-Sakhtiyani, rahimahullah, he said, from the success of a youth or a non-Arab, is that Allah guides him to a scholar of the sunnah. Yani this is one of the things that is, it, is a, it is a sign of success or tawfiq from Allah, that Allah guides a young person before he had a chance to learn or a non-Arab who doesn't know Arabic language, that Allah would guide them to a scholar of the people of Sunnah, so that they would learn the religion correctly. Also, he said, the fundamentals of the Sunnah with us is sticking or adhering or holding fast to that which the companions of the Prophet ﷺ were upon, and we should know who are the companions. In the Arabic, Sahaba, it is the singular of Ashab. He said, Ashab al-Rasulillahi sallallahu alayhi wasallam, meaning the companions of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. As regards the Sharia definition of Sahabi, or companion, as Al-Hafidh ibn Hajjah said in his book, Satul Bari, and in other of his books, he explained the definition of Sahaba. He said, the most correct of what I have come across is that a Sahabi or companion is one who met the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam while believing in him and died as a Muslim. One who met the Prophet sallallahu alaihi wasallam while believing in him 
and died as a Muslim. That means if someone met the Prophet ﷺ, but he was not a believer, he was a pagan or a disbeliever, we cannot say he is a Sahabi. But if he met him while he was a believer and then died as a Muslim, then we will say he is a Sahabi. So also, if someone met the Prophet ﷺ as a believer, but then they left Islam, became an apostate, and they died as a Kafir, we will not say they are Sahabi. So this definition makes us to know that the one who is considered as a Sahabi, he has to be one who saw the Prophet ﷺ while he was a believer, and he also died on Islam, not having left Islam. Al-Hafiz ibn Hajj al-Asqalani said, so that includes the one who remained with him for a long time or a short time. No matter if he saw the Prophet only one time or only sat with him for a short time, he is also considered a Sahabi. And it also includes those who narrated from the Prophet ﷺ as well as those who did not. Not only those who reported hadith, but even if they met him and saw him but didn't narrate even one hadith from him, they are considered as Sahabi. And it also includes those who saw him but did not sit with him, like those who saw him in Hajj. When there was 100,000 people performing the farewell Hajj, many people saw him from a distance, but didn't have a chance to sit to him, sit with him. They are also considered to be of the Sahaba. And it also includes those who could not see him, but they were in his presence as a, as a believer, but they could not see him due to blindness. Those people are also considered to be of the Sahaba. Al-Imam al-Nawawi, rahimahullah, the great scholar of the Shafi'i Madhab, and great scholar of hadith, he said the correct position, which is that with the, which the great majority, what is the opinion of the great majority, is that every Muslim who saw the Prophet ﷺ, even for an hour, then that person is from his Sahaba. And Imam Ahmed, rahimahullah, he said, every person who accompanied the Prophet ﷺ, whether for a year, a month, a day, an hour, or even just saw him, he is from his companion. And Imam Al-Bukhari, rahimahullah, said, he who accompanied the Prophet ﷺ or saw him from